This week, we have the good fortune of sharing a very open and candid conversation with Nurul Mukhtarir Bapi. Bapi is from Bangladesh and has been working in the garment industry there since 2011. Though he is now head of operations for a sourcing office, he spent much of his career to date working for a manufacturer. We talked to Bapi about why he decided to enter the fashion industry and how the industry is perceived within Bangladesh. This brings us into much more conceptual territory about how, as a society and as an industry, we assign value to different types of work. We get into the disconnect between the glamorous world of fashion design and the blue-collar world of production, and how, as sustainability advocates, part of our task is to reimagine how value is distributed and to elevate the makers of fashion. We then get into Bapi's time working with a manufacturer, and a failing he describes as saying that he was on board a sinking ship, but not knowing how to stop it. Though we have often looked at how an unequal distribution of risk and reward affects relationships between supply chain actors, in this episode, we take a slightly different angle. How does the broader context within which a factory operates impact the relationships and the dynamics within the factory itself? Next week, we will share part two of this conversation, where we get into why, if life as a garment supplier is so difficult, do suppliers continue to do it? So be sure to come back and listen again next Tuesday. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Papi, thank you for joining us today. Let's start with the beginning, or at least your beginning. Your family has a history of being involved in the garment industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, my father, uh, he worked in the garments in the 80s. In the middle of 80s, he joined garments. And he was actually a scholar person. He did his graduation and post-graduation in English literature. And from oh. Dhaka University, which, is, which was then the supreme academic institute in the country. So back then in the 80s, garments was so new in Bangladesh that when he planned to join garments, everyone was like, okay, you have gone crazy because now you will be a tailor with a university degree. So that's how people discouraged, <laughs> <laughs> that's how people discouraged my father. But he somehow saw the potential. Uh, my father worked uh, for uh, one, of the big, one of the pioneer groups in the country and he actually started as the communicator with the customer. Mm. But also at the same time, he was one of the very few people, like very handful of people who had an education degree to enter the garments business. Garments was back then very much, uh, how do I put it? it? It was a lowly business, to be honest. Like people didn't mm. need an education degree to get into garments. So he started it. And then in the beginning of 90s, he worked for Ononto Apparel. Ononto is right now one of the biggest uh, giants in garments in Bangladesh. Its MD is one of the directors of BGMEA. So Ononto is still there. 
so he started uh, with uh, most basic of the basic items because uh, the training it was going the training period was going on to teach the workers how to sew and everything so even if it was a, we remember that even if it was a very basic jacket without the collar it would be a very fancy item back then so you kind of grew up around the textile industry in Bangladesh um but joined it of course much later can you tell us about why you decided to enter the textile industry uh as you said that i grew up in a textile environment because my father started garments uh, working in the garments before i was born so we grew up hearing the garments lingo you know like we uh, mixed with people who uh, went who were in this trade and garments was a different trade back then there was immense potential and i saw my father he was very passionate about it and it wasn't just about earning money it was about making a change uh we heard him uh talking about customers and talking about developing new products and back then there weren't too many washing factories too many accessories factories so they had to source it and sometimes from outside and they had to develop up say a chinese button locally so that create that involved a sort of creativity innovation and then setting up a factory meant hiring workers from very very far away because there was no cluster so the vision that they worked with that okay let's start with basics then we slowly gradually move on to uh, better customers bigger volumes that actually inspired us a lot and as a whole the company the environment was very homely you know like uh, we remember that my father was uh, going to workers weddings to very remote village uh, because they invited their superiors back then that okay please come to our weddings because it was like a family there were too many picnics too many annual days and holidays so it was very enchanting for us that okay these are the people we are working with and these are the same people we are hanging out with on holidays and my father died when i was still in school so there was a gap and then um, i studied and i uh, actually went to i i i did uh, well in my studies to be very honest and i went to the topmost private uh, business school in the country which is also the most expensive one but because i could manage a 100% scholarship i could actually afford it i saw that there were people there were students my fellow students who came from the industrialist families politician families very educated families and they had a very uh, uh, how do a very negative attitude toward garments i remember one day having a conversation sitting in the cafeteria and i was very passionate uh, passionately discussing about garments to one of my classmates and in the middle he cut me off and he said that bappi please stop i won't spend the rest of my life sewing underwears for europeans so let's switch to another job so <laughs> that that was the general concept that if you are entering garments you will be you have to be a tailor and you have to deal with workers so that concept hasn't changed so when i was still in my business school and i was still having my graduation i felt that this narrative had to change and seeing from the outside i had the picture from my father's experience and i felt that somehow it is there so when i joined garments 
I actually felt that no, a lot has changed in those 15 years since my father has what, died. What year was that that you were joining the industry? Uh, 2011, ending of 2011. 2011. Yeah, I graduated mm -hmm. in 2012. So uh, the last one year I actually did both. Can you elaborate what you mean like ch about changing the narrative? What exactly, uh, what exactly do you mean by that? Okay, so basically, uh, there are uh, different career options. Like, uh, say, a school of business graduate would never think of getting into garments. Uh, an engineer would never think of getting into garments, even though, even though some of the mechanical engineers in garments are getting very highly paid in Bangladesh. So despite that, we will rarely see a graduate, a, uh, an engineer with a good degree getting into garments. Then if you talk about the general managers or the, the DGMs or the AGMs who worked 10 years ago, they won't bring their second generation to garments. So mm. because garments has this negative uh, yeah. sort of atmosphere around it. That you have to deal with workers, you have to shout at them and they are unrest and this and that. And this is not a very sophisticated job per se. So mm. I felt that since I knew garments from the inside, I felt that no, garments has potential and they know it from the outside, which is not true. So it's a bad advertisement, bad publicity. I have to change that. that, that that's what I meant. Hmm. It's interesting because... I, I had never quite articulated it in the way that you just articulated it, but I had sort of a similar experience in some ways when I was in Cambodia because I I really struggled to, I really wanted to hire a Cambodian technical designer because mm -hmm. the technical designer is really the link with production. And of course, production is all, is all Cambodian staff. Right. And I, I, in the end, I had to hire, um, at different stages while I was there, people are from different countries, from the Philippines, from Sri Lanka, at one point even an American. And um and I couldn't I couldn't get Cambodians to to fill that position. And part of it was about skills, that there wasn't really a strong technical design program in Phnom Penh that that oh, was, beautiful. you know, that could have people coming out of the program ready to do the job. But there were some. But those that 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 did have the skill were people who had like kind of more of a design background, who were from maybe a wealthier background and were not they were interested in fashion, but they were not interested in going to work in a garment factory because Ooh, it was yeah. like seen as too blue collar. And it was like, mm -hmm. no, no, I'm I'm a designer, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm I'm in the world of and that there was sort of like a a mental distinction somehow between like the glamorous world of fashion and design yeah. and the true, world of very production. True, very, true, very true. Somehow here in Bangladesh as well, the people who are having a fashion uh, designing degree, they think that fashion is only about runway shows and catwalks and glamour. They don't get want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to know why sewing something is so difficult. And I think we heard the similar thing from other people that uh, this is about uh, how to distribute the value. This is about how we see value, right? Because when mm. we talk about fashion, actually fashion and fashion business or garment business is uh, it's the same thing. It's, it's in the same word. But when we say fashion business, we have 
different feelings. And when we say garment business, we have another sort of feeling. I found it's a lot of similarity in Bangladesh and in China. It's the same that uh, when people talk about garment factories or talking about factories, they don't give value to it. They say to something like lower than other jobs or socially like lower. It, But, is, uh, it is, it is, it is. Yeah, it's about it how we see value. Mm. Actually, factories are the places of uh, creating values and making values. Yet we seems people don't say it that way. True, mm. and there are some like very peculiar understanding among people. Like when I call someone a machine operator, it's very lowly. But when I call the same person seamstress, it's somehow sophisticated. I don't know why, but general people think that these two are very different people, which in reality are, is are the same. It's just the right. way we portray it. Yeah. It reminds me too of some of the conversations like happening around me now. I'm in Europe now, of course, and the conversations we're having in terms of COVID and essential workers. And suddenly people are like, oh, you know, the postal service, the delivery people, like the grocery, the super people who work in the supermarkets, these are our essential workers. They're the heroes of COVID. And yet for, and, but it, it the same story applies to people making our clothes. Um, it's the kind of labor I think that often gets taken for granted. Yeah, they are. They are taken for granted. To be very honest, they are. They are. They are. So you decided you're you're just out of university. You decided, okay, you want to enter the textile industry in Bangladesh, and you ended up joining a manufacturer called Epcot Apparel. Yeah. Can you give us some context for what Epcot Apparel uh, was at that time? The types of products you were making and Uh, what kind of a production facility it was, and, and also what your what your role was within that. Yeah, sure. So Epcot uh, was, uh, there were three uh, companies, uh, Epcot Apparel, Epcot Jeans, Epcot International. Two of them were in same compound in Kazipur and another one in a, a different zone. So the <clears throat> there were around 1,200 workers and 800 machines. We mostly did Not mostly, we only did oven items and heavier oven items. We work with denim twills and heavier ovens. Not too many shirts, only occasionally. And uh, we had some very reputed customers back then. We worked for Kiabi, we worked for CND, Kerry Ford, Charles Vogle, Ocean, uh, Laredud, Varbadut, and Lianfung. And then we later on started working with LC Waikiki, like three years down the line after I joined. It's funny because you say those are some very big customers. And yet I yeah. think to most consumers, maybe they would only recognize a couple of those names that you just that you just listed, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. True, true, true. There are all these like intermediaries between supplier and brand that I think consumers don't know about. Yes, for instance, Lian Fong is huge. However, yeah. I don't we think many other consumers know what it is, but it's a huge business. Yeah. And Lian Fang's parents own HSBC, right? So, <laughs> of course, they are huge. Lian Fang is like the sole shark in Bangladesh. What do you mean by that, the sole shark? <laughs> the sole shark means they have some unique capacities. Financially, uh, their supply chain is very strong. They have their own logistics. They have their own development and everything. So Lianfang is so huge that there is no second one. Uh, the ones in volume, in supply chain, they're far, far away. There are some names like Textline, which is a Singaporean company. 
Textline is also very huge. Then there is PDS Multinational, which is a Hong Kong-based company. They are big, but not as big as Lianfeng. Uh, so Lianfeng is like the super giant there. For somebody who hasn't heard of these companies, how do you explain? How would you explain in a simple way their their role? Uh, okay, so Lianfeng is an intermediary who takes the orders from customers. And by customers, I mean by that uh, I got to know when we were working with Lianfeng. Lianfeng had a portfolio of seven hundred listed customers all around the globe, which is astoundingly huge. And those seven hundred customers would not necessarily have their own supply chain, their own developments uh, team, their own logistical supports. Sometimes their quantities would be smaller. Sometimes they would take only a few products, only few months of the season. So it's not a year-long product. So for that particular customer to go directly to a factory would not be that easy because factories look for consistent customers. Lianfeng as a whole works as an intermediary who combines those customers and then helps them with the developments, with the production, follows up everything. And Lianfeng for the customers is the supplier. Lianfeng outsources the productions in different factories to different factories in Bangladesh. But for the end customer, Lianfeng is the supplier. Uh, so the customer opens the LC or sales contract to Lianfeng. Lianfeng then transfers it to as many factories as they want, and then they accumulate the goods and then sh- they ship it to the customer. They are taking orders and placing orders, and they have their own logistic. So it's uh, let's also make it become a huge player. And it just crossed my mind. But what you mentioned, all these uh, big players, seems they are all foreign capital companies in Bangladesh, right? Yeah. Yeah, but also at the same time, you see, Lianfeng does not pay a single cent for to the factories. What Lianfeng does is Lianfeng only changes the mechanism. Like if a customer is opening a sales contract, that I cannot open an LC. So Lianfeng opens the LC on his behalf, but there is no risk involved. Even if that, I mean, of course, there are some overhead expenses like maintaining an office and uh, on the customers, but. On the production supply chain, Lianfeng does not invest a penny. Mm. So the risk is uh, pushed down the line. Right, which is something that I think we see regularly. Yeah. I mean, when in season one, we had a conversation with uh, Pete, who owns Pactix, where Jesse and I used to work. And he describes himself as a bank because he's financing the cost of production six to nine months before he sees any payment. So that's another way of saying that he's assuming all the risk. So let's go back to Epcot. So you're working for Epcot. Um, It has three different entities um, and I guess three different production facilities or maybe more than that. Three three production facilities. And what exactly were you doing for Epcot? Uh, As I was a fresh graduate or I was still in my studies, I did not have anything particular to do. What I was given the chance was I could sit with different departments to actually have an idea because I was still in my final uh, year of my uh, graduation. Mm. So I actually could sit with different departments and I was supposed to tell that, okay, which department I want to work with after one year. But when I started sitting with different departments, I, I sat with the factory manager and production manager, then the merchandising team, then the admin department, then the store, then accounts, then commercial. And then later on, as I uh, sat with all of them, I started attending meetings together with them. 
So if a merchandising team was having a meeting with a factory manager, rather than calling all the store people, they would call me because I knew what's happening in store. So that's how I became kind of a coordinator to be mm. the, you know, like the middleman among all departments. And then I had to report to my managing director that this were happening. And also between the managing director and the factory management and other management, there were this uh, GM, the general manager and the DGM, deputy general managers for different divisions. So they were also the ones who would take decisions. So I attended meetings with them. And actually, I was fortunate enough to get this chance because normally this is not a very available chance for everyone to uh, get to work with different people and know the full yeah. story. And later on, I started uh, attending meetings with banks uh, because commercial people would take me because I know the factory side of the story. And then I started attending meetings with customers uh, that, okay, these are the issues that's happening and uh, even some price negotiation. And then down the line after two, three years, when I was directly uh, taking decisions on some uh, cases, in some cases, uh, I attended some costing meetings. So yeah, you could say I became like a jack of all trades. <laughs> <laughs> You've described your time with Epcot because you stayed there a, while, a long time, right? I think you stayed yes. there seven years in the uh, end or more than yeah. that. Yeah, seven eight years. years yeah. Eight years. Eight years, yeah. And you've described to me in the past your time there as feeling like you were part of a sinking ship and not knowing how to stop it. I'd love it if you shared a little bit in more detail what you meant by this. Yeah, sure. Uh, basically, what happened was as I started sitting with people, I did not have any preconceived notion about the operation. All I knew about garments was from outside that, okay, this happened, this happened. It was all the glorious picture, you know, from the happiness, from the shipments and everything. I didn't know what, what uh, the blood and sweat that went into it. As long as I entered the chain, I sat with merchants, I sat with store, I sat with admin. There was this feeling of complete helplessness that a factory as a whole, I was feeling. Uh, you know, because I was very passionate, I was very young and I was very immature. I took it personally and uh, it was a, uh, I had this sense of belonging that this is my factory and I have to make a change. But I saw that every department is completely ignorant and oblivious about others. Say, for example, if uh, the suppliers, there are so many variables, like for a supplier who is only supplying the size level, for his delay, the entire production line is sitting idle. Now, that supplier cannot be held accountable because he committed to deliver the labels in the morning, uh, but he couldn't. He is sending it in the afternoon. Now, I cannot charge my production line cost from him because that is 10 times or 20 times the value of his labels, his entire commodity. But mm. due to his problem, the entire line was suffering. Then, uh, say, if there's shipment dates were colliding in the factory, what happened was the merchandisers were actually sitting because the merchandisers shared a room. They were having uh, discussions among themselves and they managed extension, uh, say, for customer C. And uh, the other two customers, merchandisers A and B, they are saying that, okay, we'll manage five days extension. Now, when they pass on the message to the factory manager, the factory manager is saying that, no, I can make A 
in due time but for c i need more time because c is a fancier item so mm. when i was sitting between them i was like okay why can't merchandisers know this why can't they have this easy communication that my support is to my stand is with the factory and i have to support the factory and i have to manage my customer accordingly it's not the other way around but as i got involved i saw that no in none of the case factory side is hard it's always the customer whose conditions are being applied it's always the customer or their liaison offices uh, who we had to abide by i just want to elaborate a little bit on this term merchandiser because i think it can be quite confusing Bobby in this case you're talking about merchandisers employed by the factory so who are effectively the liaison or the bridge with the brand with the customer or the intermediary you know whomever the the customer for the factory might be in this show we've also talked about merchandisers as um people who are employed by the brand for example in episode 2 Jessie shares quite a bit about her time working as a merchandiser employed directly by a brand. So I think maybe a useful way to think about it is, you know, you have these merchandisers who are effectively these liaison points that are sometimes employed by the factory, sometimes employed by the brand and sometimes employed by both sides as as a counterpart for for one another. Then even in the customer's office there were series of layers. Say the customer likes me, but his merchandiser is in favor of another factory so despite uh, the merchandiser's objection if i get the order the merchandiser would not give me approvals none of the approvals in due time so my shades aren't approved my zippers aren't approved nothing is approved because he is angry with me why i took the order or if it's the quality team say the quality uh, person who came to visit the factory from the lias office he i don't know maybe he wanted coke but we treated him with sprite so he took it personally and then he expressed it along the way that okay i will not come for pp meeting i will not uh, do the inline in time and there are so many problems so you know like making issues these sound small but when you picture the whole facility there were seven different customers going on and when we as a factory we tried to keep all of them in line with countless variables we found that at the end of the day we being the factory were the losers financially mm. losers so we always had to make a compromise at a cost okay if a customer is forcing me to uh, ship goods say without extension i had to do overtime doesn't matter how many times i request that it was the um unavoidable circumstances that is causing me the delay i wasn't granted an extension or if it's a quality teams requirement or if it's a merchandiser's requirement sometimes liazo officers make mistakes what they did was if it's their mistake they would tell us that okay please assume the cost and we'll adjust it later that later never comes but i being the factory i could not a uh, hold the liazo office merchandiser responsible because if i do that i will be colored and i'll be you know in strong opposition of the whole liazo office that would harm my business in most of the ways so that made me feel very helpless very helpless that every day uh, i saw the liability was increasing and when i say liability it's not only in terms of finance 
it's also in terms of my relation with my colleagues, my co-workers, my workers, my uh, other suppliers who are outside the factory but involved in the supply chain. Say, uh, how do I put it? Like I'm having a discount from a customer. And it's important to note here the meaning of the term discount. We're talking about brands or whoever the factory's direct customer is requesting a discount from the factory, not the other way around, meaning the factory is the one who has to lower its price. So if I uh, am asking credit for my suppliers, they are not happy. Okay, so I am paying the customer discount from my pocket, but the customer is also unhappy. The factory people are not getting paid in time and the suppliers are not happy as well. So yeah, it was a mess. I I can relate to this feeling of like having a lot of things outside of your control, which then have very adverse and negative consequences on your relationships within the four walls of your particular production facility. Right, right, and right. how as a manager, I often felt that I was just like trying to, we were being pulled in all these different directions. And I was just like, it would took all of my energy to just mediate the relationships between these departments and the teams that I was responsible for managing, because then they would get angry with each other when actually like part of the problem was, was sort of external to us. Yeah. you in the end, by the end of the day, you feel like you are extended to towards all the directions. Like everywhere is pulling you. And it was really difficult to keep us functioning as a team. Yeah, it's very difficult. And uh, you know what I was just thinking when I hear, just now when I when I was hearing Bapi's story, I'm thinking part of the conflicts actually were decided by the nature of garment business. You know, garment is still labor driven and it's very uh, subjective. The colors, the approval, the zippers, the workmanship somehow it's very subjective. Yes, it relies on science. Subjective, yes. Yes. yes, yes, it totally relies on the other one on the other side of the screen or on the other side of the earth. Judgment to yes, uh, just depends on that. So part of those conflicts actually decided by the nature of the business. However, there are some conflicts are just uh, systematic, like for instance the financial risks. It's true. All the financial risks are pushed to down to the factory. As you said, Kim, that in the end, there are lots of things out of your hands, out of your control. Yet the consequences, especially the negative consequences, were eventually buried by, uh, carried by the factory. Or with you. You know, I I thought a lot prior to this conversation about how an unequal distribution of risk and reward affected relationships sort of inter-supply chain relationships. So me as a supplier, my relationship with my customer, with a brand, and then also, of course, with my vendors further down, the people from whom I bought my raw materials. But it hadn't really occurred to me to think about it in terms of how this unequal distribution of risk and reward across this supply network also affected my relationships with my staff and my sort of internal team dynamic. And I also, I always sort of, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of 
thought about it or framed it in my mind, I guess, as my shortcoming as a manager that I wasn't able to get people moving in the same direction or pulling in the same direction and that somehow it was indicative of my own personal failure and probably to a certain extent that's true. I mean, that's part of it. Maybe there were things I could have and should have done differently. But now that you articulate it this way, Bobby, it's also just like so glaringly obvious. Of course, you know, the world around you, the world outside of you affects your relationships internally as well. And I think this whole idea of of bearing all of the risk without really any of the control over the factors that affect that risk is bound to, to be a recipe for disaster or bound to be a set of conditions that makes positive working relationships internally very, very challenging as well. And I, I don't say that to sort of let myself off the hook, but only to to just, I don't know, maybe give myself some space to reimagine what kind of things were affecting that dynamic that I might not have considered before. So thank you. All right, I think that's the perfect place to leave off for this week. But come back next week when we talk to Bobby about a question that we've had floating around in our minds for a long time, which is, if life is so difficult as a supplier in the garment industry, why do people continue to do it? Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.